Please remain standing with me as we praise God through prayer. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done in spite of who we are and what we have done. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to take on human flesh, to live a human life, to die a human death, so that as God, very God, truly God, he could redeem us from the curse of death and free us forever from our sins. Thank you. May you continue to receive the praise and honor and glory this morning for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, choir and orchestra and worship team for leading us this morning. It has been a great morning already, right? How many of you are like, we can go home, our heart's blessed. Pastor Ken, we don't have to listen to you. I saw those hands, by the way. Listen carefully this morning. I ask you to take your copies of the Scriptures and open them to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you or in the hymnal rack beneath you if you're sitting in the front row of a section. And as you're finding your place in Luke chapter 24, let me just say this. Because Jesus is risen None of us can walk out of this room this morning and say, you know, that's a really cool story, like a Marvel movie. That is, listen, that is not an option. Either we reject it and pretend like it never happened, or we believe it and it changes everything about us. If a once dead Jesus lives again, then sin's power over you has been broken The sexually addicted can be delivered. Broken marriages can be healed. Fearful people can find courage. Depressed people can find joy. Sinners can find forgiveness and eternal life because Jesus Christ is risen. Let's read it in God's Word from Luke chapter 24, but I want to go back and I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 23 in verse 50. This is Friday. Jesus is dead. And let's pick up the text in Luke chapter 23 and verse 50, and we'll read through chapter 24 and verse 12. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus. And he, that is, Joseph, was looking for the kingdom of God This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, that is, Friday afternoon, and Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed. By the way, this is a very important phrase. They saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, 
Behold, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Jesus Christ is risen. This is the word of our God to us and for us. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is not an epilogue to the life and death of Jesus. It is not a postscript or a sequel. It's the climax The exclamation point. The heart of Christianity is how a dead man walking out of a grave changes everything. Because it proves that the devil has been disarmed and that sin has been defeated and death has died. And that's why the big idea of Luke chapter 24 is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything for everyone. It's true with the people right here in the middle of this story. And it's true for the people right here in this room, including a friend of mine named Miguel, who became a believer in Jesus just a little over six months ago. And so I've asked Miguel to come and to share with you the difference a risen Jesus has made in his life. Miguel? Just in case. <clears throat> Good morning. Well, it's a blessing for me to be up here with you this morning. You'll be surprised to know that I'm not a public speaker. I'm usually shy away from the spotlight. Actually, I'm the person that usually will run a spotlight, operate a camera, be behind a soundboard, you know, the behind-the-scenes person. And eventually, I'll make it up there. But for now, I'm that guy that sits in this third row pew, taking in a message. But today I have a message for you. It's my personal testimony. For those who don't know me, my name's Miguel. I'm a father of a little kindergartner who attends, who attends Chambre Christian School. Many of you may know Lila and her sweet little smile. Actually, she was just up here singing with the children's choir at the start of the service. And it amazes me that she's singing today because the last time she sang before this congregation is when I went public with my faith in Jesus through baptism. That day, Pastor Brennan gave a beautiful prayer that not only reflected my love for Lila, but also touched on my troubled times. See, it's been a journey from to go from where I was to trusting in Jesus, to being baptized, and to standing here before you. I'm a very technical person, very logical in my thoughts and in my studies. I'm a person of science, 
And I'm talking about true science, you know, not that stuff they label science nowadays. You know, as controversial as it is, I say Pluto's a planet. <laughs> hey, my notes say laugh, wait for laughter. <laughs> when it came to religion, I grew up Catholic. I went to a Catholic church for a lot of my young life. We went every Sunday. We went all the holidays, Good Friday, Easter, Christmas Eve, Christmas, and so on. But honestly, I wasn't that religious. I felt forced to go to church. To church. I believed there was a God. I knew of Jesus. I knew of the Bible stories. But that's it, really. I really did not pray unless it was necessary. It was always about thoughts and prayers. But my life was good. There were the ups and downs. Friends came and went. And I found a career. I had a family. So religion was really an afterthought. Then three years ago, my life changed. Everything I knew was different or just wrong. I was in a really bad place. Even my passion, such as music and movies, brought no happiness. I was just numb to it all. I became severely depressed. It was a really dark time. Yes, I had Lila. She was three at the time. But there's not much you can say to a little three-year-old. And yes, I did have a family. But they were in their own turmoil. And I just did not want to reach out to them or be a part of that. Actually, no one knew what I was going through. Not my family, not my friends, not even my coworkers. So I spent my days sitting on that couch, just withering away. At times, I would open the shades and watch the neighbors socializing and having fun, but I didn't want to be part of that either. And when Lila went to her grandparents, I would isolate myself in literal darkness. No lights, no TV, no nothing. Time passed, Lila started preschool, so now I was alone more often. I did try to socialize with the people at the preschool, but it just did not work out. The darkness and isolation just became normal. There's already been a couple of years of that. Then something happened. Now playing Darling by Halsey on Apple Sorry. Music. You can always ask me to switch to... Technology. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, that's good. Well, then something happened, besides Siri talking. Time passed, and it was time to look for a new school for Lila so she could go to kindergarten. We always knew we wanted Lila to go to a private school, and we figured a local Catholic school, since Catholic was in our background in our family. So we booked a tour. So like we all do, I went to Google to look for directions to avoid all the traffic, to get there easily, and Google thought differently. Every time I searched for the Catholic school, Google would keep giving me Schomburg Christian School. <laughs> you know, it's just down the street of the Catholic school where I wanted to go. So a bit back and forth, I finally got the info I needed, but also I gave in to Google. I went to the SES website, saw there was a tour available. It was on the same day, just a couple hours of the tour, so I booked it. So we went to the tour at the Catholic school. It was nice and intimate. Then we went to the SES tour. And I'll be honest, walking in, it was really intimidating. But we were given a great term by Ms. Priscilla Shin. From the way she presented to school, to how she talked, it was really warm and inviting. Something about it, it just felt so familiar. We went home, discussed it, a few emails back and forth, and we finally registered Leela SES. You know, it's like those old gas stoves that you needed like the little pilot light to use it. Well, that day my pilot light was lit, because after that, I opened up a little bit. 
I started doing all kinds of stuff with Lila, taking her places here and there. It was the summer of Lila. But in reality, I was still empty inside. Every time Lila would go with the family, I was back on that couch, isolated in that darkness. Well, then school started, and I would bring Lila to school. I would start making these small friendships with many of the parents, as well as a lot of the staff. Then one day I walked in with Lila, and she does her little hello tour where she goes around and says hi to everybody and gives everybody hugs. And I would just stand there, and I looked over, and I noticed Pastor Ken. Now, I seen him every morning greeting everybody coming in and out of that early education center, and I just figured he was a security guard. <laughs> so I walked up, introduced myself as Lila's dad, and asked him what he did for the school. I was surprised when he told me he was a lead pastor. I worked with a lot of administrators in my life, even reverends, and you wouldn't rarely see them. They're always hiding in their offices. But here was a lead pastor in front door of the EEC greeting families every morning. I was astonished. And next day I remember walking in, and over the noise of the kids coming into the school, I hear Pastor Ken saying, good morning, Miguel. See, this person who sees hundreds of families a day as an entire congregation greets me by my name. He remembered my name only after that one time. I knew there was something special about him. So we would chat daily. Eventually, we developed a friendship, and not just a church friendship, but an actual friendship. And then with a little encouragement from mission, I decided to come to service. So on September 11th, an interesting date within itself was the first service I attended. I came in with Lila was greeted by so many kind people. I took Leela downstairs to the children's church. She really did not want to stay, but luckily she found a fellow classmate, so she was okay. I came upstairs, sat in the back with Mike Sean, and I started to take it all in. I was open-minded, as this was all new and different for me. I observed the music, and I started listening to the message. It was Peter, it was about Peter in a boat, and Jesus walking on water. I remember that story from when I was a kid. So I listened and just looked around at just the whole architecture of this beautiful auditorium. Then Pastor Ken said the following words. Perhaps God has brought you here this morning to show you that he doesn't save you because of your strong faith. He saves you because of your strong grace. And that's why it isn't about the amount of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's about trusting in Jesus and his grace rather than you and your own faith. You see, walking into this church, I was a broken man. I really did not have any faith, and if it was, it was so little. But to hear that none of that mattered, that all I needed was Jesus' grace, that hit me hard. That changed me. I just sat back there and I wept. Even gathering my thoughts for this morning, even right now, I get very emotional just thinking about those words. After the service, I went downstairs to get Lila, fully expecting her to never want to return. But I was surprised. She loved it here, and she wanted to come back. That was so different from when I was a kid, because I always felt forced that I had to go to church. So we did. We started attending regularly, and each Sunday, there was something in that message that grabbed me, something that spotlighted my situation. At the time, Pastor Henry did not know my story. So those powerful words were coming straight out of this gospel. And it was the first time, and it was not the first time that this happened. 
People who I shared this testimony with tell me it's the Holy Spirit working. I think it was the third service I attended where I sat up front over here because I, couldn't, I didn't have my glasses, my new glasses, so I couldn't see that screen up there, especially by Mike. I can't see nothing up here. I remember feeling that everybody was looking at me, judging me, trying to figure me out because, you know, I come to church in a suit and tie all the time, and I was now sitting up here up front. That same day, Pastor Ken talked about how outsiders are treated because the way they dress differently, they talk differently, are not part of this group. It just astonished me that he talked about that that day. That same Sunday, Pastor Ken also had this takeaway in his message. The desperation of our situation is intended to lead us to Jesus. The suffering that we encounter is not accidental or coincidental. It is purposeful. It is the hand of God moving us towards Jesus. I take that to understand on this journey that I am on, that we are on. All my logic, all my science, can I explain everything that just happened to me? From that Google result, to Priscilla's tour, to Pastor Ken greeting me at the door, to their friendships, even to the words coming out of this gospel, where at times it felt like I was being preached to directly on a one-on-one session. My only explanation to this is this is God's divine plan, his perfect plan. You see, a year ago, I was not here. I was back on that couch at home in darkness and depression. But here I am now, a changed person. My trust in Jesus changed everything. And Lila, one day at home, it was quiet. And you know, if you're at home with a five-year-old and it's quiet, it's not the norm. (laughs) But I found Lila on that couch where I sat all those times with her head bowed. And asked her what she was doing. And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, shh, I'm praying. Now, don't get me wrong. There's still plenty of struggle. Plenty, plenty of struggle. Plenty of struggles. And I've been dealing with them. But now there's two big differences. One, I have you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who I can reach out to, as well as you know you can reach out to me. And secondly, I have this, God's word. Whereas recently, as during spring break, there were some tough times I opened this book and I found a verse about prayer, which helped me move beyond that, those situations. And I know I shared this with a few of you, but as of late, while I was trying to connect with someone on something that I felt was important and it just did not work out, instead of getting angry and discouraged like I always do, I found a verse that even today is giving me the strength to stand here before you. That verse, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is here, is with you wherever you go. I believe he is here with us today. One final thought before I step down. I think back to that faithful day when I walked into those doors of the EEC. Yes, that may have been Pastor Ken at the door. That may have been his words greeting me by name. But you know what? I believe Jesus was there opening the door and saying, hey, Come here, come to me, and open your heart, because you're not home. And it's all started with a good morning. I pray that you hear your good morning. Thank you, and God bless.
I didn't know it would be so hard to get up and preach after that. (laughs) Thank you, Miguel, for testifying to the grace and the glory of King Jesus. Because what you've just shared is a mirror of the radical difference an empty tomb makes in the lives of these people in Luke chapter 24. As they find themselves living right in the middle of the greatest story ever told, the story of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And for us to really get how that changes everything, we've got to know what goes down on Friday before Jesus walks out of that tomb on Sunday. Because on Friday at 3 p.m., the one who created life, the one who sustains life, the one in whom is life, takes his final breath and dies. No life. No heartbeat. No brain activity. And the fact that Jesus is buried is proof that he isn't just partially dead or mostly dead. He's all dead. You don't bury partially dead people. You bury dead people, especially if your names are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Now, now Luke in his gospel doesn't tell us about Nicodemus, but John in his gospel does, telling us that Nicodemus comes to help and to aid Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Jesus. And we have to understand that these are two well-known guys in this day in Jerusalem. They serve on the religious council that's just crucified Jesus. And so when Joseph and Nicodemus lay the body of Jesus in a tomb on Friday, they have nothing to gain and everything to lose. They are not undercover guys on a top secret mission of burying a Jesus who isn't really dead. Now, that may seem obvious to us, but there are still a lot of people today who deny the resurrection by saying that Jesus had just swooned on the cross, that his body was just injured, and after a few hours in the cold tomb, that he is brought back to life. But here are two highly respected guys who are putting their reputations on the line by laying Jesus' body in a tomb because he's dead and then rolling a large stone stone over the entrance to that tomb. And then it's also important for us to remember that Luke, the one who is writing these words that we are reading, is a medical doctor. Now, just think about this for a moment. I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't want my doctor to be someone who is confused about the difference of someone who's still alive and someone who's dead. So Luke is putting his reputation and his profession on the line here when he writes in chapter 23 that Jesus is dead and buried, he's essentially giving us a peek at the medical records of Jesus. The doctor has spoken, he's signed the dotted line, Jesus is dead. Totally dead. And then if you look at chapter 23, verse 55, Luke wants us to know that there is a group of women who are there at the tomb on Friday afternoon when Jesus is buried. Luke tells us that these women see the tomb, they see how the body of Jesus is laid in the tomb, and that's significant because even still today, some people claim that on Sunday morning, 
the women find an empty tomb because it's dark and they end up at the wrong tomb. But Luke takes that option off the table right here in verse 55. The women know exactly where Jesus is buried, how He was buried, because they are there when He is buried. Now, I know that that's a lot of quick-hitting information, but it's important information because Jesus rising again changes everything. Everything about us, what we believe, how we think, how we live, all of it hinges on a dead Jesus who is now a living Jesus. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that if Christ is not raised, then my preaching this morning is in vain. Then what Miguel has shared with you is nothing more than a mirage. That we are still dead in our sins and that we have made God out to be a liar. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, everything about Christianity comes crashing down like a house of cards. But the flip side is also true. If the resurrection of Jesus is a reality, it changes everything for everyone because it means that everyone will exist forever, either with Jesus in heaven or without Jesus in hell. A resurrection means that this world is not spinning out of control towards some random cataclysmic conclusion. Instead, God is in heaven fulfilling His plan in our world and in our lives. And so everything has real meaning and real purpose, even our pain and suffering. Because the resurrection promises that one day God is going to turn evil on its head. And bring eternal good from it. And that means that right now in this room, at this moment, God is moving all things toward his predetermined conclusion of a new heaven and a new earth where the risen King Jesus will reign forever. Ushering in an eternal life of, of joy and glory and grace and peace for the eternal good of His people and the eternal glory of His name. One day, that day will come. The resurrection really does change everything for everyone and it all begins early on a Sunday morning right at dawn. When a group of women set out for a tomb, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary the mother of James, there's Salome. Now, they're not all mentioned in Luke's gospel, but they are in the other gospels. There are also other women with them, but there's also a woman named Joanna, and she's my favorite. (laughs) Now, those of you who are new here don't know why everybody's laughing. Everybody's laughing because my wife's name is Joanna. And so that just earned me points for this afternoon and this evening. Now, listen, I don't want to in any way diminish the love and devotion of these women for Jesus. But when Luke is telling us that they're coming to the tomb carrying spices, he's telling us that part of their reason for coming is because of their unbelief. They are not looking for a resurrection. They're looking for closure. They aren't carrying cupcakes and balloons to throw for Jesus a resurrection party. 
They're carrying spices and ointments to preserve the dead body of Jesus. They aren't expecting an empty tomb, but an occupied tomb. And that's why Mark chapter 16 tells us that on their way to the tomb, they're discussing who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb. And they're asking that because they don't know what's just happened at the tomb. They don't know that an angel has rolled the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let them in. And when they find that stone rolled away, they're perplexed, the text says. The Greek word here literally means that they are so surprised and confused that they don't know how to react. You ever been there? You're so super shocked by something that it leaves you both speechless and reactionless. Like when your teenager cleans their room without being asked. Or like when you drive through at McDonald's and they get your order right. Or when you win your property tax appeal with Cook County. But the shock and awe we feel in those moments can't compare with what these women feel in this moment. Because they aren't just stunned by what they find that the stone is rolled away. They're shocked by what they don't find, that the body of Jesus is gone. The linen claws are there. The shroud is there. Everything is there just like it was on Friday. Only one thing is different. The body of Jesus is not there. And while the women are standing in this tomb empty tomb, trying to make sense of it all, they suddenly realize there are two men standing right there with them in dazzling apparel, which is code for two angels just instantaneously appear. And now the women aren't just perplexed. Now they're frightened. Now, there are are many different kinds of fear. I mean, there's the your wife hiding behind the bathroom door, jumping out to scare you kind of fear. There's the your daughter turns 16 and is driving to the store alone for the first time kind of fear. And then there's the Friday phone call from the doctor asking you to meet him in his office first thing on Monday kind of fear. But the kind of fear that grips these women is such a unique fear that the Greek word is used only six times in the entire New Testament. It's the kind of fear that initially startles you and then it seizes you and eventually it paralyzes you. Now, I'm not sure any of us have a category for this. I don't think any of us have seen a dead body go missing and then two angels show up. I mean, the closest that I can get maybe to what these women are feeling in this moment are the two times that I've been caught out in a boat, on a lake, in a severe thunderstorm with tornadoes around. There is is no more helpless and powerless feeling in the face of the power of nature. That's these women. They are in the presence, not in the power of nature. They are in the presence of the power of heaven. Angels. That's a whole new category of fear. 
They are standing in the tomb of a gone, missing, dead man. And heaven doesn't just show up. Heaven speaks up. Ladies, listen. You're here for the wrong reason. You're looking for the wrong thing. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Just remember what Jesus said that he called this when he told you that he would be crucified and then buried and on the third day he would rise again. Listen, you won't be able to interpret this empty tomb unless you remember what Jesus said. And that's when this shock and awe moment turns into an aha moment. Suddenly they remember That Jesus promised this would happen. And now it has happened just as he said it would happen. And instantly, when they remember his word, instantly their confusion is replaced with clarity and their fear with faith. It's Psalm 119 verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So maybe you are this morning right where these women were on this morning. Maybe you're living in confusion and fear. Maybe you've endured a divorce or in the middle of a divorce that you don't want, that you don't like. Maybe you're, maybe you're in the middle of a career and you're, and you're middle aged now and you're like, why did I choose this career? There's nothing in it for me. Or maybe you've asked God for a spouse, but you're still single. Or you've asked God to heal a disease you live with, but you still got it. And it's getting worse. There are a thousand different scenarios that could confuse us and even scare us. And when we find ourselves in one of ourselves in one of those, here's what we need to get. Listen carefully. It isn't answers that give us clarity or allay our fears. It's promises. God's promises. These women cannot make sense of an empty tomb until they remember what Jesus has promised. Because the empty tomb is God's exclamation point to all of his promises. That's why I'm always quoting to you 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. That all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Period. Exclamation point. A living Jesus. And that's why these women hightail it back to the 11 disciples, and they say, guys, 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 we've just been to the tomb, and it's empty. Jesus is alive. He is risen, just as he said. And we would expect the disciples to begin bro-hugging and high-fiving and chest-bumping. But notice, no, there's none of that. Instead, there's just eye-rolling at these ladies who are seeing things and hearing voices. The disciples don't believe a word they're saying. 
But then out of nowhere, Peter suddenly jumps to his feet and takes off in a dead sprint for the tomb. Now that's saying something because Peter is one of the older disciples. And as we know, the older we get, the fewer good reasons there are to run. Amen? Good. So we need to ask, of all the disciples, why is it Peter that takes off for the tomb? Now, John in his gospel tells us that he takes off for the tomb after Peter does. But why is old man Peter making a mad dash toward the tomb? Let me ask you a question. Do you remember Peter's last interaction with a living Jesus? It was in a courtyard while Jesus was undergoing one of the six mock trials on the night before his crucifixion. And Peter is haunted with that last interaction he had with Jesus. He can't shake the shame of that. Because he was asked by a little servant girl, aren't you one of them? Don't you belong to him over there, Jesus? Aren't you with him? And Peter says, no, I don't know the man. I don't know him. Three times in the last time he curses Jesus. And that's when Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62 say that the Lord turned and looked at Peter from across the courtyard and locked eyes with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not too old to remember that when I was a child, my dad would stand behind a pulpit like this, and I would sit down here in the third or fourth row on the left side, and if I wasn't paying attention, my dad could lock eyes with me. And he wouldn't have to say a word, but I heard a thousand words. And the Lord turns and looks at Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter, I told you that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And that's when Peter leaves and goes out and he weeps bitterly. He's shaken to his core. The shame, he feels the guilt that haunts him. If Jesus is still dead, there is no hope of Peter ever shaking that shame and being freed from that guilt that's haunting him. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says that if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, and we are of all people most miserable. That's the kind of despair that Peter feels as he is sprinting toward the tomb. And that's why John tells us something that Luke doesn't. John tells us that when Peter arrives at the tomb, he stoops and looks in, and then he runs into that tomb. John doesn't. John looks in from the outside. But Peter, when he arrives at the tomb, doesn't just stop and look in. He runs through the door of that tomb all the way into the tomb because a risen Jesus means that sin won't continue to define him, shame won't continue to haunt him, and condemnation won't have the final word with him. It's Romans 8 verse 34. Who is to condemn? It's Jesus who died. 
And more than that, it's Jesus who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, living and interceding for us. If Jesus lives, there's no condemnation for Peter. And that's why Peter leaves the tomb marveling. He's blown away by what he's found in an empty tomb. The resurrection has overwhelmed his despair with hope. And you know what's really cool? Is that the man who saw and the man who felt and the man who experienced the grace of Jesus and the power of Jesus from a living Jesus says this to you in 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Through Jesus, you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Get this. So that your faith and hope are in God. Do you believe that? That God raised Jesus from the dead so that your faith and hope would be in God. This comes from Peter, who's seen. Peter, who's heard. Peter, who's felt. So when you think about your life, do you see yourself in Peter? Are you haunted by guilt, by shame that you can't shake? You try to escape. You you work more hours. You eat too much. You drink too much. You binge that new Netflix series. You're trying to numb yourself to the shame you feel, but it all just leads to more despair rather than any hope. More confusion rather than any clarity. More fear rather than any faith. Listen, the guy who sprinted into that empty tomb on Sunday morning is telling you that God raised Jesus from the dead so that your faith and hope would be in God. Is it? Is your faith and hope in God? You see, the empty tomb is proof that Jesus' death on Friday was enough to pay for the sins of any and all who would repent and come to Him in faith. So will you take your sins to Him and trade your sins for a living hope? It's His invitation to you. When He cries out from that cross, it is finished forever. Finished. The price for your sins is paid in full. There is nothing left for you to pay. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation, none at all. If, if you will repent and trust in Jesus Christ to save and redeem you. That's why Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you? Will you trust him? Will you come to him? Because you will find in him hope that will overwhelm your despair. Faith that will overwhelm your fear and clarity that will overwhelm your confusion. 
Trust in Jesus. And when you are a believer in the risen Jesus, then can I give you this morning just three practical suggestions to help you gain clarity in life and build faith in life and sustain hope in life as you follow the risen King Jesus. Just three suggestions. Number one, get to know your Bible. I mean, really get to know it. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Be here on Sundays and Wednesdays to learn it. Because as the angels say to these women, until you remember and understand what Jesus said, you won't be able to make sense of anything you see. And by the way, have you noticed in our world today, it's getting harder and harder to make sense of anything we see? We need the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says that God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God's Word gives clarity. So get to know this book, and then you'll be able to secondly then apply God's promises to everyday stuff in everyday life. God's promises are not, are, are not just words to be, to, to be tossed around and talked about in academia, in seminaries across our nation. God's promises are for the street of life, the everyday stuff. But you can't apply what you don't know. So get to know the promises of God that he makes in his word when he says things like, I will be with you, and I am for you, and I am working all things for your good. Those are just three of the hundreds of promises in God's word for you to apply to the everyday stuff of everyday life. And so can I just ask you to do something maybe? Pick 12 of God's promises. Miguel shared one earlier from, from Joshua 1 verse 9. Pick, pick just 12 of God's promises. One for each month of the next 12 months between today and next Easter. And write those promises on a three by five card and post them on the refrigerator door or the bathroom mirror so that you'll be reminded of them often. And when you see the promises of God, you'll begin to see the fulfillment of the promises of God in everyday life and everyday stuff. That He's a God who keeps His word all the time, every time. And he will every moment of every day to the end of time. So thirdly, learn to view, and this is my suggestion to you, view today through the lens of the eternal glory that's coming. View today through the lens of the eternal glory that's coming. The resurrection of Jesus proves that we have a living hope because Jesus lives, there is coming a day when God won't just remove death, He'll reverse death. He'll turn it upside down and inside out, just like He did with the death of His own Son. He'll undo every injustice. He'll heal every hurt. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. To use the words of J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, one day God will make every sad thing come untrue. One day. It's coming one day. So don't give in to the confusion and fear and despair. Let God's grace replace all of that with a pedal to the metal living for Jesus. Be all in. Go all out. The tomb is empty. The once dead king lives forevermore. 
The struggle will conclude in victory. The pain will give way to joy. Death will come untrue. And eternal life will forever live in its place. It's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is alive. And because He lives, everything changes for everyone who believes in Him. Amen. Father, may you take these words and apply them to our lives and plant them deep in our hearts for the glory of the risen King Jesus. In his name, amen.